Thanks, uh, thanks very much, James. Yes, so I'm Richard Black. I clearly I perceived a few months ago that the risks of staying in the BBC were much larger than the risks of coming up. Uh, it's nice when you make good, good decisions. Um, so we've got just under an hour for this, and, and even though our three, uh, three speakers are incredibly distinguished, I am going to ask them to be absolutely strict on this 15 minutes, or even shorter, um, if, they can, uh, if they can manage it. I'm looking forward to hearing very much what they have to say, um, particularly you know, the, 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 mixtures, the mixes between these two terms of risks and uncertainty. They mean very different things, I think, in the public arena than they do in the uh, academic arena. Um, are you, are you about ready, Chris? Yes, I'm ready. I'm sure he know, needs no introduction, but Chris Rapley, um, Head of British Antarctic Survey for 10 years and many, many other wonderful things. Over to you, Chris. OK, thanks very much. Hello, everybody, and uh, uh, let me move on fairly quickly. <clears throat> if, you, if you talk to communication specialists about how to get your message across, one of the things that they always emphasise is that you need to understand your audience and your audience's view of the world. Um, and, and on a similar issue, a, a very insightful colleague of mine once said, to be successful in an organisation, Chris, you need to be the smallest person in the world. And I said, why? He said, you need to get inside the head of your boss. <laughs> um, and I think one of the things that um, has, has struck me when I was director of the Science Museum, where the museum puts a great deal of effort into informal science teaching and working with uh, teachers who work in the formal educational system to complement what they do, um, it, I discovered after having been a researcher for whatever it was, 30-something years, that I knew very little about how science is taught in schools and how it's represented. And so it was something of a shock to me to discover that by and large in the educational system and hence in the public at large, science is perceived as a body of knowledge, a set of facts. And that's the way it's taught. Um, and so in those videos that um, Emily was showing this morning, people were angry that they were hearing about stuff that was unresolved because their expectation is that science should be a solid body of fact, the Newton's laws, the things that are absolutely known. So that's the audience. That's, what they, that's their expectation. But as researchers, we're almost the other pole. What interests us is the, is the frontier of the unknown, the things that are either unknown or uncertain. So our mindset is all about, oh, the uncertainties, where the discussion is still going on. That's what interests us, that drives us. So it seems to me that at the root of some of the things that we've been hearing about is this utterly different and discordant worldview and our lack of understanding that the expectation of our audience is very different from the expectation of, of ourselves in what would engage or, or interest us. And just to drive that home a bit further, um, I remember as a, a young undergraduate in, in, in the Clarendon lab, not very far from here, um, some of my first lectures hammered home the fact that as a physicist, um, a natural scientist, a number is not worth anything, measurement is not worth anything, unless you express the uncertainty and also the, um, uh, the units, and that there is a distinction between accuracy and precision, which I won't go into here. So right from the very start, inculcated deep into the natural scientist culture is this obsession about uh, not only addressing uncertainty in its formal sense, but also representing it uh, formally and professionally as one talks about one's results. Um, and of course, 
not just uncertainty, but also how you know things, the detection of something. I, I started life as, a, as a, a, a space astronomer, and we were looking for signals in noise. Um, and so there are formal ways in, in, in the very simple one, the probability that the spike you've seen uh, is a signal rather than a, a random event using um, a statistical analysis to decide whether or not you have detected something. Now, these are, these are sophisticated ideas that are deeply ingrained in the science community and by and large, as, as we've heard many times this morning, are not understood at all out there. Now, when you get to climate science, and, and I know others are going to talk about the IPCC, but uh, it's difficult to talk about climate science without dealing with the IPCC. If we look at um, the fourth assessment report, um, of, of course, uncertainty um, needed to be dealt with and addressed there. But here is the page that tries to explain how the treatment of uncertainty was dealt with by working groups one, two, and three, who operate in very different ways. Um, and, and I would submit to you that the average person on the street is not going to find this very easy to deal with. So this is a, an immediate source of, of, of deep confusion. If we go to the working group uh, one approach, the sort of more quantitative uh, uh, approach, Again, you've seen this table this morning, and we've heard how um, this, this is, is not uh, helpful in terms of communicating what scientists know or don't know or what they're uncertain about um, to the community at large. Um, now, why? Well, partly because uh, if, even if you read at the popular level, I'm in a very dangerous position, a sort of natural scientist who's becoming an amateur social scientist, but it's very important and interesting to understand uh, how the mind works, how people make sense of the world. But if you just take a very popular book like Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, he gives many examples of how people find it very difficult to make judgments uh, about risk and uncertainty. So he gives this set of examples. Strokes cause almost twice as many deaths as accidents, but 80% of subjects judge otherwise. Tornadoes are regarded as more frequent killers than asthma, yet the latter causes 20 times more deaths. And he gives many more examples. So, and, and the psychologists dig into why this should be so, why people drag down particular sets of associations, how things that are more real to them because of their experience are judged differently than things that are less real, despite what the, the, the data may tell them. So, so first of all, we start with the, the sort of psychological difficulties of understanding relative probabilities. Um, but if we look at that, uh, at that table, it's, it's too complicated. People, I can't remember more than about three things at once, and to remember all of those is, is far too difficult. Um, it's confusing because they used overlapping intervals for the extremes, so things were greater than 70% or greater than 90% or greater than 95%, so they included all the other probabilities, except in the middle where there was a range. So it's a fundamentally confusing concept anyway, however well it's written down in the table. Um, it, it ignores that prob uh, prob problematic history of using this approach of linking numerical ranges to a verbal statement which uh, has been experienced in law, intelligence community, even in meteorology. And Nick was saying that there is a, 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 a long um, history of, of academic study of this. So it sort of ignored all of that existing knowledge. 
it ignores affect, how, how people respond to information. Um, and you've heard uh, uh, several people have mentioned this Budescu et al. Um, work. Um, but uh, what, what they found empirically, and, and Nick showed the, uh, the graph this morning, was that the, the words um, conveyed a much greater range uh, than was intended of, of uncertainty. Um, that uh, what he didn't mention was that negatives exhibit a greater range in bias. And in fact, I remember being um, taught by a Sun sub-editor who, I might say, fulfilled the part in his looks and behaviour um, as well as, uh, as, as his origins, but actually had us all eating out of his hands very quickly, saying that negatives always lead to more confusion, try and express things positively rather than negatively. And double negatives, he said, would lose your audience very quickly. So all of this knowledge is out there, but is not known, uh, it seems, by the natural science community. And the, 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 the consequence of all of this is that try as uh, hard as one may, even when one says, uh, you know, uses a, a, a verbal expression of uh, uncertainty and places that table next to it, that people are left with a greater impression of uncertainty in the case of climate science than the, the science itself um, deserves. So um, I think this is the example that uh, Emily gave er earlier, so I'll leave that. Um, but here's another nice expression which Badesco and, uh, and Co sort of speculate about, but it, that they didn't pursue it. But there is almost certainly a difference between saying it is very unlikely that the meridional overturning circulation will un undergo an abrupt, uh, uh, large abrupt transition during the 21st century relative to it's very likely that the MOC will not uh, undergo an abrupt thing. So even in terms of where you place the negative in a sentence can have a material effect on how people hear what you say. Well, of course, all of this has been deftly exploited um, by those that would sow confusion and doubt. Um, and if anybody's um, uh, not come across Oreskes and Conway's book, then I really recommend it. It's a, a, a sort of masterly account of the, the long history of the way that those that would uh, defend vested interests um, use doubt as a, as a means in a democratic society to um, prevent legislation or, 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 or draw people into the sand. So doubt is our product is the uh, infamous statement. And it, it's, it's very easy to sow doubt for the reasons that we've just seen. So um, it, it seems to me I have a very simple model of, of where science goes. And you may say this is a bit trivial, but, but I, I, in my mind, I find it helpful. Um, you know, there are, there are unknown unknowns out there and known unknowns, um, which is what interests uh, me and my colleagues. That's our, our bread and butter. That's, that's what we pursue. Um, and through measurement or speculation or, or, or thought experiments or whatever, um, through the scientific process, we dra gradually draw stuff uh, from the unknown into the uncertain, where we can debate and argue and go through the self-correcting scientific process until we end up with something which I've called known. Now, what we or established, what we know is that something can uh, instantly be withdrawn from the known, put back in the uncertain. But the general direction is from the outside to the inside of these circles. And so I thought it was interesting that Royal Society 
when it produced its uh, revised and updated uh, document on climate change recently, more or less adopted that sort of model. They identified a series of uh, issues uh, uh, which uh, they uh, judged met with wide agreement. Um, they they uh, outlined another set of issues over which there was wide consensus but continuing debate and discussion and uh, varying degrees of that. Um, and then on the outside, going back outwards, if you like, there was not well understood. And then, of course, there's the unknowns. And it seems to me that that you know, three-scale um, uh, classification and the way it is expressed uh, is helpful in terms of conveying this very complex subject. Now, we, we've heard about um, risk versus uncertainty, and um, any of us that have run, or anybody who runs a large organization is required uh, these days by their board or council or whatever to have a risk register, and so they all understand this concept of a risk-based approach. You know, what is the threat? Uh, it's, the, it's the likelihood versus the impact, and uh, if you're a senior manager, you're required to demonstrate how you're managing down separately the impact and the probability of, uh, of events and of course the tail events even if they have a low probability may have a very large impact so they have to be dealt with um, and, and, and yet that is apparently not a, a common way of thinking uh, again with people at large if they're not involved in large businesses if they're not put through that discipline then it's something that they're not very familiar with so in the Science Museum um, climate science exhibit, we, we introduced a game on the web called Risk, which you can only um, gain um, uh, success if you actually manage a risk register. It's making a risk register fun. But just in lectures, uh, it, it, one can pose people um, this problem. The, the objective is to reach the, uh, the hut on the top of the hill there. Uh, you're confronted with this sign in a strange language and a field in front of you. But what you probably um, imply from that is that the field may have mines in. It may not. Now, the approach taken by climate pseudo-skeptics to climate change is to say, under these circumstances, that's all right, it's very uncertain, I'm sure everything will be fine. If it's not, we'll deal with it when it happens. I doubt whether anybody, uh, any rational person, would adopt that approach in crossing this field. They would say, no, no, wait a minute, I don't want to get my leg blown off or, or be blown up. So I'll both mitigate uh, and adapt. I'll wear protective clothing. I'll send somebody across there with a mine detector. I'll take a risk-based approach. So people get that. They understand the distinction between uncertainty and risk expressed that way. Just a, a final thought, which is not quite on the same subject, but it, uh, I, it strikes me as having been very important in... in um, it's been material in the way that climate scientists have not managed to, if you like, convey the message sufficiently well to society uh, that society has responded in the way one would have wished. And that is, it's a very complex story. The Earth is the most complex object in the universe. How it functions uh, requires years and years of, uh, of professional study and understanding to get a grip on. Um, and yet it's very tempting to look for a single poster child to uh, sort of summarise uh, uh, and convey the message. So um, some years ago in AR3, the temperature hockey stick, which you can see just behind, uh, out of focus in the background behind John Horton there, but you all understand the hockey stick um, graph, 
um, was seen as the way to convey a whole a mass of complex information into something that people would get and respond to. In fact, global average temperature is a uh, thermodynamically meaningless uh, variable. Um, and in any case, it's not the issue. The issue is that the planet is out of energy balance. And I submit that all of the stuff that um, climate scientists, the mire that climate scientists have been drawn into subsequently, uh, including the fact that Global Warming Policy Foundation uses the last 15 years of, uh, of global average mean temperature data um, as their logo, um, derives from the fact that actually temperature is just an indicator like GDP and, and it's not a very good indicator of what's going on and it would have been far better if we had focused on the real issue which is the energy imbalance and its consequences rather than the temperature which was convenient because we had data sets, surface temperature data sets uh, which we could use. So e even the way that one expresses the, the, the points, the issues you pick on lead to this uh, 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 detachment between the, the true narrative and how people um, receive it. Those are my thoughts. Thank you.